Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... The outcome of missing out on legal advice and legal assistance for individual women is in many cases really significant and very, very dangerous. New research shows more than 52,000 women facing domestic and family violence were turned away from legal services last year, unable to receive help due to underfunding. Also... So if Indigenous people aren't able to control their education and have a greater say in it when it's happening on their own country, then we can't really be expecting these empowering outcomes to follow then. A new project exploring First Nations-led schools' ability to support self-determination and improve education outcomes. And later today... Logging, you know, sacred tribal lands and just logging them for tipping and exporting that. That's wrong, that capitalism and that are getting too much greed. The Tasmanian Supreme Court has granted a temporary injunction to stop logging in the central highlands, protecting the habitat of the swift parrot. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia, thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, Medicare turned 40 yesterday. And although many Australians have felt the benefits of universal healthcare since its inception in 1984, there are concerns the scheme hasn't evolved in line with the nation's changing health needs. Health Minister Mark Butler praised bulk billing and Medicare, saying it's boosted social equity no matter where Australians live. But with rebate increases and a lack of GPs in regional and remote areas, for many Australians, adequate healthcare is becoming less accessible. National Radio News political correspondent Noah Sakem asked Federal MP for Riverina Michael McCormack his thoughts on Minister Butler's statement. Well, it's all well and good to praise bulk billing and it's all well and good to praise Medicare and all the arrangements around that. And certainly Australia has a health system second to none. But if you're in a regional area, it's difficult to get a doctor. And it's certainly difficult to get a doctor when you always need a doctor. And for the health minister, Mark Butler, to come out and say, well, if you can't get bulk billing, then do a ring around. Well, that might be okay in the city, but I tell you what, if you're out in a regional area, and particularly if you're out in a remote region of Australia, it's not as easy as picking up the phone and getting the next available bulk billing doctor. That bulk billing doctor may well live hundreds of kilometres away, and the further out you go, the more difficult it is to get a doctor. As someone who lives in the country and represents a rather solid section of New South Wales, What has the experience been of locals trying to navigate the GP bulk billing system? Well, it's difficult. And when Labor took power, it uh, changed the distribution priority areas for GPs. It brought Newcastle, Wollongong and some suburbs of Sydney into the scheme. Therefore, that took doctors away from country areas. Therefore, it made it even harder to see a doctor in a country area. And New South Wales is not just about Newcastle, Sydney and Wollongong. New South Wales is all of the state. And it is difficult to find a doctor. It is difficult to to get a doctor. And many doctors, their books are full, particularly in country areas. They find it difficult. They're working their fingers to the bone as it is. And there's just not enough of them. And that's why 
we put in measures and place. I know Mark Colton did a, a power of work, as did Dr. David Gillespie as regional health minister, to try and you know, bridge the gap between the great divide between city and country. And Ann Webster's doing a great job now is helping regional health supporting regional doctors, supporting, moreover, patients who live in these, who choose to live and work in the regions. And on that in particular, I've had a look very briefly myself just on the internet. Hey, I'd like to go to a GP that bulk bills. And just looking at some of the towns in your electorate, I could only find one in Young. So admittedly, I didn't go through every city and town, but... But it is hard to find them. And, and you know, mm. and, and doctors... They need to be paid what they're worth. They, they, they train hard, they work hard, and, and we appreciate that. Many of them are running uh, practices and they, they are getting more and more expensive. We've got a cost of living crisis and it affects doctors too. But it's difficult to find a doctor. And if you can find a doctor that bulk bills, well, well and good. But if you can't find a doctor that bulk bills in a regional area, it's not that easy to just, as the minister suggests, pick the phone up and get the next available one. They're not there. And this government needs to do more to support the regions. This government needs to do more to support health. It's bad enough that uh, that they change the dispensing rules, and uh, the 60-day double dispensing rules means that uh, uh, you know there, there was a suggestion that it could cost up to 20,000 jobs and close hundreds of community chemists across the the nation and in many towns. And so to pivot a little bit to an announcement that we heard from. Chris Minns, so State Premier, in regards to encouraging people to move to the country, to the regions, to do business and all that sort of stuff. How viable do you think it is then when there are so many closures of health facilities and GPs are already difficult? I wouldn't want people to be discouraged from moving to the regions. And we saw during COVID, the darkest days of COVID, that the regions were indeed the best place, safest place in which to live. And I wouldn't want people to get the impression that we don't have good health services out here. We do, but they are just under pressure. And they're under pressure because we've got a Labor government which is putting city-centric policies in place, which is making it more and more and more difficult for doctors to operate, for pharmacists to stay open, and for regional patients to either see a chemist or see a doctor. So that's the bottom line. But I wouldn't want to see in any way, shape or form, people be discouraged from moving to the cities because there are great opportunities. What are your thoughts on the stage three tax cuts in the wake of all this cost of living pressure and, I mean, I suppose to tie it to the GPs? What are your thoughts on it all? Well, before the last week, Anthony Albanese promised over and over again, until people were quite frankly sick of hearing him, that he would under no circumstance, those were the words he used, cancel the coalition stage three tax cuts due to commence on 1 July this year. He said to Australians that they could trust him to keep his promise because... Again, his word, not mine, my word is my bond. That was Federal MP for Riverina, Michael McCormack, speaking with National Radio News' Noah Sakem. A different take on Australian current affairs. This is The Wire on your community radio. estimated more than 52,000 women facing domestic and family violence were turned away from legal services last year, unable to receive help due to insufficient funding. Women's Legal Services Australia have published its 2024 federal budget submission, asking the government for a minimum of $10 million additional dollars per year in order to meet the services demand and continue to support vulnerable women. The Wire's Joelle Jessa Darson spoke to Board Chair of Women's Legal Services Australia, 
Eleanor Rosenman, about the work they do and the need for increased funding. Legal Services Australia is the national peak body for the 13 specialist women's legal services that you will be able to find in each state and territory across Australia. The help that women's legal services in in each of the jurisdictions provides to women includes free specialist legal advice and assistance. We also provide support services, financial counselling, community legal education, How serious can the effects be for the more than 52,000 women who had to be turned away last year due to lack of funding, especially the financially disadvantaged and marginalised women at risk of violence? In all our services, what we see is that one of the most effective messages that violent partners have to keep women in relationships is messages around, if we separate, you won't get anything and you'll never see the kids again. The outcome of missing out on legal advice is in many cases really significant and very, very dangerous. So obviously for many women who can't get access to any alternative information, they'll actually make the decision that the safest thing for them to do is to stay in the relationship. In other situations, something that should be of concern to all people that are worried about the safety of women and children, they often will also make agreements around the care of children that are manifestly unsafe for them and their kids. So the outcomes, obviously, are deeply, deeply undesirable, unsafe, unfair situations. How else does underfunding affect the women's legal services as a whole? The pointiest end of underfunding is really there in that data around the 52,000 women that are turned away from women's legal services across Australia every year. And that is a conservative number. That is the number of women who approach services and that we are not resourced to assist. It doesn't count the number of women who are not even able to get in contact, are not able to reach services in their local area. One of the other things I'm really concerned about is that essentially the underfunding of this service is creating itself a really significant gender pay gap. So the majority of people who are employed by women's legal services are obviously women. The funding arrangements for these services mean that those services are not able to pay people commensurate to the level of the skill and experience that they bring to the job. You're seeking an additional $10 million a year as the minimum. What would be ideal? In terms of numbers for the women's legal services, $10 million is the minimum investment that we need to actually sustain our current service model. We've put forward a package of up to $20 million that would help our members ensure that they're able to provide a broader suite of services, including legal assistance in relation to sexual violence, in relation to migration, in relation to employment. The other thing that we're looking for is funding for Women's Legal Services Australia as the peak body to ensure that the voice of the women that are accessing our services are included in national conversations around law and policy reform. How do you think the federal government's new law reform commission inquiry into responses to sexual violence and the new consent policy framework will affect Australian women? Obviously, we're in the very early stages of that inquiry and overall we think it will be positive to have a national approach to consent. In terms of the inquiry into these justice responses, we've really welcomed these really big focus on systemic change, but it is absolutely integral that these kinds of inquiries are also backed by funding for frontline services. You noted that despite funding commitments in previous budget cycles, there has not been a significant uplift in specialist legal services available to Australian women. Why do you think this is? We have seen some attempts to increase 
the availability of specialist legal assistance for women across Australia. Most recently in 2021, we saw the announcement of quite a significant investment in specialist women's legal services. Unfortunately, the majority of that funding never actually made its way to specialist women's legal services. We think the deliverables are as important as the announceables, and it's really critical that governments, while they keep their eye on big systemic change and they are involved in really changing cultural ideas about women, that they ensure that they are backing that up with adequate resourcing to frontline services. That was Eleanor Rosenman from Women's Legal Service Australia speaking with The Wire's Joelle Jasardison. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on ACCC 102.1 FM, to our listeners in Hobart on Edge Radio, and to the other side of the country, to Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. New research finds community-controlled First Nations schools support self-determination and improve education outcomes and overall well-being for Indigenous young people. Many First Nations-led schools were established in the 70s and 80s, following a long history of insufficient government-mandated education, forced attendance and exclusion. To learn more about community-controlled schools in Australia, I spoke to Project co-author Samara Hand, Waramai Birupai and a Wabakal woman, and PhD candidate at the University of New South Wales. Essentially what it's about is the community having greater control over education. So they would decide what the curriculum looks like, so what students are learning in school. And that's probably one of the most kind of fundamental parts of it. And then also like the kind of governance, so like the running the school. So how does that work? Is it um, a principal that's then kind of overseen by a board um, or like a council of community members? And that, you know, that could be made up of a mixture of parents as well as well as elders, for example. So it's control over, I guess, the decisions and, and then what's being taught in school at the end of the day and also the language that it's being taught in. In terms of curriculum-wise or maybe specific things that are taught in schools, how would this differ to something that's offered in, I'm going to say, normal school, for lack of a better term? It would differ in the sense that um, the school would have more freedom to follow a different kind of curriculum. So the curriculum might be more like land-based, for example, so there might be a lot more learning on country, centred around country, where, um, you know, what would be traditionally science lessons that are happening in a lab, for example, or you're looking at textbooks in a traditional classroom are actually happening out on country. And there have been examples of that already in like the Northern Territory. Um, it might also be like a bilingual um, education program, the actual curriculum itself. And this is where there's a little bit more limitation because schools in Australia at the moment, even where there's, um, I guess, an independent school set up, they are still required to follow like the state curriculum. But I guess an even, even higher level of self-determination would be, okay, we don't need to say, oh, this is English and this is the math lesson. You'd still, you'd still work towards those learning outcomes. You still want to develop literacy and numeracy skills, but you would do it in a more holistic way. Because Indigenous knowledge doesn't fit neatly into those disciplinary boundaries because, that, I mean, that's just kind of the Western 
model of like knowledge and education where you have very distinct kind of classes of English, math, science, etc. And what are some of the better outcomes for First Nations students in these schools and, and why have you seen such success in this model compared to a, a mainstream schooling? So some of the outcomes are like improved attendance rates. That's kind of one of the first noticeable outcomes. So students coming to school more because they want to be there. Improved literacy and numeracy outcomes because students are more engaged in, in the learning process. And then what we're seeing here in Canada where community control of education has kind of been allowed to go on for longer because of just a different policy environment here. You're also seeing improved graduation rates um, in the long term. And then also, I think what's potentially um, sometimes overlooked, because of course, you know, graduation attendance and learning outcomes are important, but also students actually just having better well-being outcomes. They're enjoying being at school more. They're actually enjoying like the learning that's taking place and feeling more self-confidence. Uh, Indigenous students can struggle with in a mainstream school is because they don't feel like they're seen in the curriculum or that their culture is seen in the curriculum and shared, they can feel a sense of isolation. They feel a greater sense of pride then when it, the education is reflecting their culture. Educational exclusion or I guess the education gap that exists, mm -hmm. you know, to this day, what what does a First Nations-led school or how does, how does that kind of move in the direction of, of closing those gaps? I think a lot of the attempts around closing the gap that we've seen from the kind of formal closing the gap policies are really just focused on getting students to school. So they've really focused on those attendance outcomes and then, of course, the graduation outcomes. And I think to a lesser extent, and not to say there hasn't been any attempt, but to a lesser extent, the focus has been on actually making education culturally appropriate. And I think that's really important in terms of achieving self-determination. One of the things education is really valued for is empowering people, you know, empowering you with the skills and knowledge to kind of lead a better life. But if the actual process of education is not empowering, so if Indigenous people aren't able to control their education and have a greater say in it um, when it's happening on their own country, then we can't really be expecting these empowering outcomes to follow then. There's, there is a limit, of course, to how far a mainstream school can go into, can do that because a mainstream school is catering to not just Indigenous students, but also non-Indigenous students. In terms of actual kind of implementation of something like this, like you mentioned, the Australian schools, all Australian schools still have to cater to a curriculum to get this approved or enacted on kind of a, a bigger scale. Is there some kind of process with with government you know with each kind of indigenous nation or um, indigenous community it really depends um how they want to go about it so the mk turner report has a few recommendations in there at some level it would probably involve some sort of legislation change so enacting a law or slightly tweaking current education laws that allow um indigenous communities to then establish their own schools that all, that gives them the freedom to modify the curriculum or to, or to develop their, their own curriculum entirely. Basically, there's not a one-size-fits-all rule of how this would be implemented, um, but it, from, it definitely requires the government kind of coming to the table to support it and making some sort of change to the law and policy. That was Samara Hand, Waramai, Birupai and a Wabakal woman and UNSW researcher ending that report.
This week, the Tasmanian Supreme Court granted a temporary injunction to stop logging in the central highlands, protecting the habitat of the swift parrot. Baladar Noongar man and First Nations advocate Desmond Blurton travelled from WA to Tasmania to join a blockade against native forest logging in the area. The wise contributor from NADA Media, Gerard Mazar, spoke with Blurton yesterday to learn more about the protests. I travelled over to Lutruwita uh, Nation, uh, Tasmania, and also I went or travelled to Nipaluna, which is Hobart. What was the purpose of your trip? There was a blockade there. They are, was doing a blockade to protect the Swifty Parrots, the Bob Brown Foundation down there. That was the first blockade that I went to, and they're protecting the Swifty Parrots, which are one of the fastest parrots on the planet, I believe. And they travel when they migrate. They're migrating birds and they travel from Nipaluna, Hobart, and they migrate to Nam up there in Melbourne. Wow. And so how are the parrots under, under threat? What's the development that's going on there? Sustainable Timber, Tasmania. They are just logging these you know, sacred tribal lands and just logging them for chipping and exporting that. That's, that's wrong, that capitalism and that are getting too much greed over our tribal lands, and especially for the animals such as the Swifties that need to have their home for when they return back from Melbourne and or from the mainland when they return back to Nipaluna. They need their homes still there. It's horrendous that this is uh, happening down there in Nipaluna where these are endangered species of parrots, the Swifty parrots, you know, need to be protected. Who are some of the people that you met while you were over, uh, over that way? Well, um, Violet Coco, she's a staunch activist over there, in, I think on the East Coast, and also uh, got to meet Nala uh, Manson from Tasmanian Aboriginal Council, and also, uh, I want to give a special mention to Brother Roy down there, Maynard. Um, I, I keep in contact with him through social media. And funny enough, Jared, yeah. uh, he just rang me out of the blue, Roy. And then I said, well, I'm coming down to your tribal lands maybe in a week. Can I get permission to bring my my dude down? And he said, sure enough, you, you're more than welcome to come here. And you can play on our on tribal lands here, Lutruwita. Well, I did hear a rumour actually that there was a uh, a Baladong Noongar man uh, busking in the streets of Hobart and uh, drawing in <laughs> massive, massive crowds. Would you yeah. know anything about that? Yes, guilty as charged. <laughs> um, when I was there, uh, I met a lot of the people there, and um, you know. When I start playing, I just gather in a crowd, and um, I'm having photo shoots in the in the streets with with people and uh, Celtic fans coming up to me, um, getting a photo because I'm wearing my Celtic shirt, and it just shows unity and solidarity that I can spread across this tribal lands, and I'm honoured and, and proud of that, and I love you, mum and dad. You've done very well. And up there in dream time, I hope they're looking down upon me smiling. And do you have any any thoughts or words for Invasion Day? 
yeah, well, you know, this is uh, the the project that that this is being seen by everyone here is that everyone is living on false lies um, about uh, Australia. You know, this is uh, First Nations tribal lands where our culture needs to be presented first and foremost. We, we, we don't want to be drawn into this greed and corruption, which is the colony is projecting. To save this colony and everyone on it, our culture must be presented first for sustainability. There are key elements in our culture that must be highlighted because it's been working on our land since the dawn of time. We need our stolen tribal lands somehow given back to us. And we all can move forward. This is the day of the, the day of mourning that that went past, and it's just going to continue the trauma that's going to be passed on to our kids and grandkids unless we all come together and fight. Black follow, white follow. We all stand together. That was Baladong Noongar activist Des Blurton there speaking with Nada Media's Gerard Mazar. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jugara countries on which this program has been produced, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. Thanks so much for your company, and we'll see you next time on The Wire.